pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. One of the difficult questions of life is why do bad things happen to good people? Why do good people suffer so much? Why is it that God's faithful people face so much opposition, pain, and suffering? It's a question with which people have struggled for centuries. It's a question with which I struggle. It's probably a question with which you struggle. But there's another question, another difficult question in life that haunts us perhaps just as much. We struggle not only with why do bad things happen to good people, but why do good things happen to bad people, to those who are truly evil and bring injustices upon others? It's one of those questions that gets under our skin and occupies our minds and stirs up our emotions. And it should, because injustice is a real problem in our world. It should disturb us and move us to a position of action as we grieve and mourn with all who are mistreated and suffering. It's also a question with which people have wrestled for centuries, including people in scripture. And one of these people is Asaph, the author of Psalm 73. We don't know a lot about Asaph, but he's mentioned enough for us to know that he's a worship leader in the temple. He seems to be a deeply committed follower of God who uses his music to praise God. But as Psalm 73 unfolds, we find Asaph, this worship leader, in a crisis of faith. He's wrestling with this very question. Why do evil people often prosper living lives of ease while those who follow God often suffer? Asaph readily admits his battle as he confesses his frustration, his lack of understanding, his anger, and jealousy. In the midst of this battle, Asaph vividly describes those who are evil. They're proud, violent, hard-hearted, mean-spirited, and insensitive. They mock others. They threaten oppression. Yet... They are the ones who are living lives that are carefree, they're healthy, strong, and sometimes they amass great wealth. Whether Asaph's view is completely accurate or not, he's truly grappling with how to reconcile all of the pain, suffering, and injustice in our world, including his own with the prosperity of those who are evil. But Asaph's struggle isn't just limited to injustice or those who are, who are evil that are prospering. We also get a sense that he's disappointed and angry at God. 
This could be because he doesn't believe that God is handling all of the evil and injustice as he should. Or it could be because Asaph has some false expectations about God's goodness and what it means to be a follower of him. I think that this is often our problem, as it is Asaph's, and the consequences are far greater than we realize. Asaph's struggle with the prosperity of those who are evil reveals a crisis of faith where he nearly loses his foothold. But this is not just an issue of faith. This is really an issue of the heart. Asaph uses the word heart six times in these 28 verses. The Bible tells us that the heart is that central place where the mind, the emotions, and the will all meet. It's the inner life of a person. It's the center of our desires, passions, affections, motives, impulses, and decisions. Maybe this is why Proverbs 4.23 says, Above all else, guard your heart, for it's the wellspring of life. And probably why Jeremiah tells us that the heart is more deceitful than all else. This is why scripture says that our trouble, the real problem, is inward, not outward. It's how we respond to circumstances as much, if not more, than the circumstances themselves. And this is an issue and struggle for most all of us at some point. Someone has said, have you ever noticed how critical in spirit we become when our spiritual life starts slipping? When God isn't central in our hearts? Heart problems begin with the little things. Usually it starts when we take things into our own hands and commit what we consider no harm sins, like gossip, envy, jealousy, anger, bitterness, telling little white lies or exaggerating the truth to make us look better. Ultimately, our hearts will be filled with something, with our own interests and desires or with God's interest and desires. We see this truth in Asaph's life as he struggles with what's in his heart during this crisis of faith. His foothold is slipping. He's no longer in a secure position. His view of God is distorted. We see this in the first three verses of the psalm. He first speaks of God being good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. He then says, but as for me, I had, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And in verse 13, we hear Asaph's anguish as he says, Surely in vain 
I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been afflicted, and every morning brings new punishments. Asaph bears his soul as he says, But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. Probably all of us know what it's like to have our feet slip. One moment, we're walking along. The next, we're grasping for something as we struggle to keep from falling. Here, Asaph gives us a picture of what it's like to go from a place of stability to a place of free-falling. Have you ever felt this way in your own spiritual life with your spiritual footing? Have you ever felt as though your feet are slipping, you're losing your foothold? You don't feel secure and stable as your spiritual anchors are giving way. Asaph's honesty is revealing. His feet are slipping because he has allowed himself to give in to the illusion that if life is hard, if life is unfair, if difficulties come, despite his own faithfulness, then God isn't who he says he is. The fact that he is allowing this illusion to take hold of him exposes the current condition of his heart, that he is more interested in what God can do for him than in God himself. It appears that Asaph is doing all of the right things. He follows God. He acts in the right way. He believes the right things. While those who are evil are doing all the wrong things, their words and actions are inexcusable. They do whatever it takes to get whatever they want, using, hurting, and destroying whoever's in their path. We can almost hear Asaph asking, God, have you abandoned me? Why aren't you being good to me? Shouldn't life be easier? Aren't there any rewards or perks for following you? And when we're most honest about our own struggles, we may be able to relate to Asaph because it's so easy for us to get things turned around. My father's a retired pastor and when I was young, there would be times that he would go on an overnight trip or a trip for a few days to attend a conference or a meeting. And when he returned, as I ran into his arms for a hug, the first words out of my mouth were, Daddy, what did you bring me? <laughs> Usually, he had some small gift or trinket until one time, when he returned from a trip, as I ran into his arms asking, Daddy, what did you bring me? He said, Cindy, I brought you myself.
if you think that my response was, oh, Daddy, that's the best gift ever. You are all I ever really wanted. You would be wrong. How easy it is for us to become so enamored with God's gifts, with what God does for us and what God promises us, that we miss the great joy and wonder of God's presence in our lives. But there's a hinge point, a pivot to this psalm. There's a moment here when we can feel the psalm shift, when we feel the whole tenor of the psalm change. It's in verses 16 and 17. Asaph says, when I tried to understand all of this, it troubled me deeply till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Asaph's heart and perspective begin to change when he enters the sanctuary, the temple, to worship God. True worship, no matter where we are, changes us. It grounds us. We all know how we can get so upset about something or someone, blow it out of proportion, but when we honestly and openly come into God's presence to worship him, we are changed as we begin to see life from God's perspective and not just our own. N.T. Wright says that Jerusalem and the temple itself are not just a convenient gathering point. They are the place of promise, the place of presence, the place out of all the earth where the living God has chosen to live. The temple is the place where heaven and earth meet, where we come face to face with the reality of God. The temple isn't the place where people come to convince Yahweh to do what they want. It's the place where people come to surrender themselves to him and to encounter him so that they know who he is and his grand designs for him. We see this in Asaph's life as he finds help and hope in the holy place of God when he comes honestly seeking. He wants to see, even if in the moment he can't. But in this place, his vision is refocused. His eyes turn from his own self-centeredness toward the reality of God in his holiness. When Asaph comes into the temple, into the presence of God, when he personally encounters God, he begins to see the world and all of the injustices from God's perspective. His perspective towards evil changes from one of longing and envy to the realization that whatever these people possess, wealth, power, good health, that is all they have they have nothing more 
because they don't have God. He also begins to understand that God is at work in the world. God is and will deal with all who are evil and with all the injustice in our world because God will have the last word. Upon his encounter with the living God, we see Asaph's broken and repentant heart in verses 21 and 22. He says, when my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. It's important for us to see that Asaph doesn't give up on his faith as he recognizes the ugliness of his sin. Rather, as he genuinely repents, he begins to see that God is good and loving and more than adequate to meet any and all of his needs. Asaph has a transformation in his heart as his perspective changes. Through all of this experience, he discovers that God is good and he is enough. He recognizes that God is most important in his life, not God's gifts, not what God can do for him, but God himself. You know, as I got older, when my parents would come to visit us, I was always thankful for any gifts they brought us. But as the time was coming nearer for their arrival, I wasn't wondering, what are they bringing us? But rather, I can hardly wait to see them, to spend time with them. As we grow and mature in our spiritual lives, there's a movement from the joy of receiving gifts to the joy of being with the giver. Our passion isn't about what God can give us or do for us. Our passion is being near God because our passion is God himself. Do you know how Asaph describes this trans this transition, this transformation in his life. In verse 2, he confesses that he has nearly lost his foothold. In verse 28, he declares, but as for me, it is good to be near God. Being near God is good. It is life. While being separated from God is death. Because if we don't have God, we have nothing. I wonder if one way of analyzing our heart is to ask ourselves, does it seem good to me to be near God? Asaph tells us that as we draw near to God, we do it by putting our trust in him. Knowledge and trust go together. 
the more we trust God, the more we know God. The more we know him, the more we trust him. When we personally experience God in our lives, we know his goodness, his love, his faithfulness. And even if, like Asaph, our circumstances don't change, even if we are suffering, even if all of life seems to be falling apart, even if we don't understand all that's going on, do we believe that being near God is still better and more important than anyone or anything else in this world? But keep in mind, this decision to draw near God isn't a one-time, isolated act. This intimacy with God is ongoing, sometimes day by day, sometimes moment by moment, as we continually seek him, drawing near to him. And as we do this, we will find that some days are harder than others. When life is disappointing or difficult, when we suffer a harsh blow, when we're distracted or confused with all that's happening or not happening in our daily lives, we may struggle to continually draw near God. We find that we need help. It's during these times that we have to remember that God is always near us, always moving toward us. Because of his grace and love, he helps us through these times when we can't do it on our own by drawing us close to himself. Like Asaph, we begin to see that God is always with us, continually holding us, guiding us, helping us, giving us a sense of his abiding peace and presence. He is the strength of our hearts, and he will sustain us. Christian author Hannah Whitehall Smith tells of an experience that changed her life. She said that it was during a time when she was really struggling spiritually. So she went to see a woman who was known for her deep faith and relationship with God. Hannah poured out all of her trouble and difficulties to this woman, expecting understanding and sympathy but all the woman said was, yes, this may be true, but in spite of it all, there is God. Hannah said, I waited for a few minutes, expecting her to say something else, anything, but the woman just sat there and the silence was deafening. So Hannah then said to the woman, uh, you must not have understood the seriousness 
of my problems. Oh, yes, I did, replied the woman. My response is still the same. In spite of it all, there is God. Hannah said, it's hard to put into words how disappointed I was. I thought, my situation can't be solved by the statement, yes, but there is God. But because Hannah's need was so great, she went again and again to see the woman, always with the hope that she would begin to understand the depth of her problems and finally give her some adequate help. But every time, the woman would simply reply, yes, I know, but there is God. Finally, one day, after the woman had repeated these words again, Hannah said that she began to understand that this woman really and truly believed that the mere fact of the existence of God as her creator and redeemer was an all-sufficient answer to every possible need. She says, at last, because the woman said it so often and with such conviction, I began to wonder if God might really be enough, even for me and for my need, as overwhelming and deep as it was. From her wondering came a gradual belief that God, her creator and her redeemer, must be enough until finally she realized that he really was enough and her eyes were opened to the all-sufficiency of God. Hannah says, as I drew near God, my troubles began to disappear and I did nothing but question how I could have ever been so foolish as to have been troubled by them when all the while there was God, the almighty and all-seeing God, the God who created me, the God who loved me, the God who was on my side, eager to care for me. I learned that God was enough and my soul was at rest. She ends by saying, the greatest lesson a soul has to learn is that God and God alone is enough for all of its needs and the needs of the world. In these difficult and trying days in which we are living, do you believe that God is enough? It's my prayer for me, and it's my prayer for you, 
that we will believe and that in believing we will draw near to God because there is no better place for us. Amen.